Hey guys, Steve here. Photonics. Today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Hey, hey, everybody. You guys are having a great day. Episode 336 of the Growing with Fishes podcast. Today we have Dave Scott coming to us from Jamaica. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Ah, thanks, man. It's uh, it's great to to finally talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I know we've uh, had some technical issues on either your end or mine the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm so happy yeah. we're finally able to uh, to get it all started. For sure, for sure, um, man. Yeah. It's... We... Go ahead. I was going to say before we get started, let me uh, quickly uh, just uh, mention our two. Um, online courses real quick and then we can get started with the show if you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis please consider the aquaponic cannabis masterclass at apmjclass.com featuring over seven days of in-depth hands-on educational content with marty waddell and stephen raisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, uh, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of, and, uh, and so much more. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. And if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses, please check out uh, thepestclass.com. We have a huge in-depth course on pest control, how to make your own um, biocontrols, as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you might encounter in your aquaponics garden. And it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis, uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well. So be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in right. your education. Well, uh, certainly having a exciting episode for you guys today. Um, those of you that don't know, Dave Scott is an extremely experienced breeder. Uh, he's been around a very long time uh, and grown all different types of genetics around the world. Uh, we were just talking before the show about how, how many times him and I have been in the same country and either not in the same part of the country or just missed each other by a few months, uh, multiple times over traveling around. So um, uh, we were kind of getting a good kick out of that. So Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, thanks for talking to us about uh, your wonderful experiences at Cannabis Universe. Oh, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, you you just keep coming up in my reality all over the place, from from my friends in Thailand to my friends in Jamaica asking me without knowing that I'm talking to other people. But uh, yeah, so it's kind of like karma kind of pulled this introduction together, and I'm planning to head to Thailand in uh, probably August, maybe maybe September I'm feeling kind of exhausted after this uh this big Jamaican push breed that's gone on for a year now non-stop um but yeah for sure I'm super stoked to talk to you guys and share what we've been up to been uh literally going through a lifetime of of genetics and uh trying to get in there because I've been working in corporate cannabis nonstop for like seven years now. And it's the first time I've actually been able to get into my own stuff and 
just grow. So I've been going through a lifetime of, of, of seeds and, and hybrids and shelved work. You know, that's where I started on something in Canada and bred it maybe to an F3, but never got to do that again because I ended up in Jamaica. And so all those projects and all those various genetics that I've worked with over the years, I, I try to dig into the collection and germinate everything that that could. And, you know, there were some disappointments, but I would say that about over 85% of the work that I've done, say, since like two, even into the 90s, my Cambodians are still going, but um, yeah, probably slightly over 85% actually made it. You know, those losses are always uh, kind of sad. Um, and cracking some of the seeds that I haven't cracked in years, like the one we sold years ago, 18 years ago, is Accidental Haze, which is a old Mexican red hair cross uh, Colombian red. Um, and those are heirlooms that didn't come directly. Like now I'm working with, with plants right from Colombia, but those are heirlooms from like Arizona breeders back in the early overgrow days and stuff. But um, every time I, I grew these plants back out, it was like a trip down memory lane for me because the smells and, and the entrances of each one of those strains brought me back to a different stage in like my, my breeding and cultivating time, you know? So like popping a lot of the stuff that wasn't say my primary cup winners, but was in the, in the running back when I like won 2004, five, six cups, you know, in Holland. Um, it was just kind of amazing uh, to, to dig back through those and smell the smells and, and realize that um, how important that preservation work is too, you know, um, because I mean, in my 33 years of working with the plant, there's so many things that I took for granted I'd be able to get again or, you know, that just were in that moment that just aren't anymore. Um, so, yeah, as I've got older, I put a lot more value on the heirlooms and the foundational strains than I do a lot of the hybrids because, I mean, that's where it all started, right? Like, uh, Kevin Drodry was just here from Humboldt and uh, with the Marina boys who are like, uh, Cuban black haze and the piff haze guys from New York and uh, they were blown away by strains like a uh, really well um, bred line of Acapulco gold for example which is part of all the early stuff from skunk one and I have a pheno in that that smells like green apples and Kevin Jodry was so surprised he smelled it he's like man it's like somebody rent melted down a, a, G a green jolly rancher you know and this isn't new it, it's been become more frequent by inbreeding and selection for many years but you know a lot of these strains did exist historically and um, I think now more than ever now that we're in a time where the uh, sort of motivation um, behind you know why people grow and what they'll grow has changed because the value of cannabis at least in North America has changed you know like um and so we, a lot of the stuff that weren't big sellers for me back in, in say 2000 to, you know, until 2015, because everybody is concerned about bag appeal, you know, flowering times, height, all those aspects now are kind of gone out the window. And we have a lot more people because of the, you know, the lack of regulation and stuff that are willing to grow these, these super exotics and plants that didn't really fit that prohibition model. So in many ways, in spite of some of the depressions around cannabis, I think that we're entering a, a new phase of like uh, a, of a um, 
going back to the old foundational strains and just like a new birth of, of cannabis genetics and a new birth of exploration of, of non-typical genetics. And so that's why I think that this, this time is also a really good, good time for me to like release the life work. I'm letting go of all the parent lines, absolutely everything then. Um, because I'm not before, like the Vietnamese black, that was Willie Nelson's mom, right? I hoarded it and the police took it. It was the last contact I ever had with police. And it was lost and I've grown every Viet black since. And there's similarities in there, but all it took is one person who predominated those seeds to, you know, bred it down to one clone. And that phenotype could be like kind of lost. But anyways, yeah, it's uh, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm, I think I'm becoming more reflective and, and uh, my motivation has changed a lot too, having worked in corporate cannabis and knowing what I don't like, you know, and uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely, I guess I, I've matured in, uh, in my outlook as, as a breeder. And so now I'm far more of a preservationalist than I am like an elite line breeder, although that interests me. Is there what traits um, are you uh, excited to kind of sit, look for in some of the different stuff, or maybe geno profile, or sorry, terpene profiles, or some of the other different uh, things oh, that yeah. um, you're, you're excited to search out for that maybe you, you couldn't do in that that other market? Well, yeah, my other market. So having worked, so uh, the last seven years for me has been working with a, a company that founded the first commercial gardens in Jamaica and then sold it to Afria a big Canadian company. And then we did first garden, some of the first dozen gardens in Colombia. And our focus has always been on EU cannabis for the German market, Israel, Australia. So it's been 22% THC and up and has to fit into, you know, our, our basic commercial, you know, layout, whether it's our greenhouses with our lighting augmentation systems and darkening systems, or whether it's our indoor rooms. So um, yeah, so I'm super excited to really, as everybody that knows me knows, I'm a haze freak and a, and a sativa freak. Um, so what I've enjoyed the most is literally digging in and, and finding those, those standouts amongst, um, you know, some of the Colombians where we're saying, hey, that is where haze got that aspect from, right? Um, or like my skunk one from scratch, which actually started in 2003, um, which is rebreeding. That's why I met Sam the Skunkman in Holland is him and, and another guy, Rob Clark, had read about what I was doing way back on Overgrow. And they came and checked out this skunk one that I bred from heirlooms. Right? Um, but yeah, so so really um, what I'm enjoying the most is, uh, is um, you know, uh, digging into those heirlooms. And really, I refer to um, inbreeding and selection of heirlooms as polishing them, right? going through as big in numbers as I can and really bringing them down to, you know, to, to their, to their highest standards, but without inbreeding, say to type or to, to cubing it to a line. I'm also enjoying doing a lot of work for equatorals, which is what I've been working on for the last while where I'm taking and making hybrids between stuff like, uh, um, my super lemon louse, um, is, um, love potion cross, uh, Hayes skunk, which was actually bred by skunkman from when I gave him the love potion, crossed to super louse haze and making great hybrids for the equator, 
um, for outdoor that don't require a photo period extension to to yield decently in a in a reduced kind of number of days compared to typical equatorial. So really, I'm breeding plants um, which are um, you know sativa dominant hybrids um, that are you know specifically bred towards um, being able to be cultivated from seeds at the equator. Um, that's been a, a huge part of of what I've you know been working towards. Again, what I mean by seeds at the equator is without photo period extension lighting. Um, we we just planted about an acre um, right now of a bunch of those hybrids um, that that I've been working on, and we'll be capturing and recording them and you know sharing data. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely the uh, a part of the market that really isn't being catered too much as far as equatorials or just heat tolerant stuff for even places like the southern U.S. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, stuff that grows on the coast certainly is different than what we were growing in Oklahoma. That's for sure. Yeah, I've done a whole bunch of hybrids, um, but using my Acapulco Gold line, which out of all my Mexican Colombians, it's my personal favorite. I think it was Kevin Jodry's favorite, like comparing it to Oaxacan or any of the other plants I have. Although he really was big on the black seed too, which is an old Mexican um, hybrid that's kind of a, a Canadian heirloom from, from the interior of BC, kind of a, an old hippie variety. He really appreciated. But um, yeah, it's uh, nice to have the level of freedom we have now to really practice our craft. You know, um, I started working internationally before we were really in that kind of a situation. I was growing and breeding in Mexico in my 2005. Um, and that's where a lot of my work really started. And it's really where I learned the core of, you know, of how I was able to come into the legal market and know how to set up fields and irrigation systems sort of ahead of, you know, the times. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, really interesting watching everything change as I used to chase the world around where I might be able to squeeze in a, a, a crop because of tolerance or, or circumstance um, just so that I could do like a, a population growth, basically a population being like, you know, 10,000 plants or more. And now I'm, now I've had my full, I got to be honest, guys, now that I've operated some big stuff, I'm like, yeah, been there, done that. Um, I don't really like to grow more than two acres of canopy now. Um, Seven acres, even with 38 staff in Jamaica, was a hell of a task, as our friend Bob found out when he took over after I left the country. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, it's been, a, and same with that 1.2 million square foot EUGMP facility in Ontario was a ball buster, man. Being regulated by Health Canada and, and GACP GMP and having independent fucking regulators and 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 so I had um, input allowances that under GACP GMP that were banned by Health Canada, and the opposite. So I was fucked and quarantined in certain circumstances. I I just couldn't use anything. Like for example, pyrethrin is is okay under GACP GMP, but it's banned in Canada because it can be harmful to honeybees. Although I don't know how honeybees are getting in our 1.2 million square foot fucking greenhouse right um but yeah i i've been dealing with the bureaucracy of modern cannabis and uh and yeah it was it was seriously painful 
And let's face it, the best cannabis is grown, in my opinion, under the sun in one acre or less patches around the earth. And then we have some really elite growers that grow under lights, of course. But I really feel that some of the finest cannabis on earth, whether it's indicas or sativas, are, are grown under the sun in the proper environments um, for, by people who love cannabis, not by people who love money. And uh, that financial thing has always been the bane of, uh, of sort of the breaking point of relationships in, in cannabis. It's, uh, I've seen greed just destroy so many people and so many relationships. Um, and a lot of times the greed is based on speculation and not even reality, you know? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weathered veteran of corporate cannabis. <laughs> Yeah. Wanted to also welcome uh, Josh and Josh Burns. I know uh, he was excited to ask you some questions as well. Hey, Josh. Hey, bro. How's it going? Good. How are you doing, man? Good, man. We've um, we have a mutual friend in Kevin. Uh, oh, he's a and, fucking great guy, man. Yeah, yeah. And he were we were talking to him when he went down there, and and I think he sent you some of my stuff, and I in. We, we may have we may have even done some exchanging via him in the past all right on um but it's nice to meet you though nice to meet you too man yeah kevin just got was down here and he got on an old school trip i had literally a, a massive collection of of heirloom sativas and hazes and and him and the marina boys were just like and you know kevin smokes those cigar sized blunts right but he he said to me when he when he got back into uh, into California, he's like, man, everything's so narcotic here. I'm stoned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was high here, right? From the right. And he got there and he was stoned. That's cool, man. No, it was really cool to see the videos that they were putting up. And I'm excited to see, you know, what, what comes out of it. It looked like a, just a phenomenal trip. And cheers to you for, for the work you're doing, bro um really 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 interesting stuff like i i've been you know at it for for a little bit little while not, not as long as everybody is some people but um i'm stuck in that indica dominant game you know that that like you know exactly what you're talking about that narcotic thing and so i'm i would love the experience to get myself out of that you know i don't think i actually have the willpower here in the states to just like stop smoking indica dominant stuff but i think down in a tropical place like that i would really fucking enjoy it it's good work man there's a oh, yeah. uh there's a friend of mine todd in canada and uh he's actually how i met bob because he todd came here on my recommendation to do extraction at the facility we sold to afria um, i'm just saying this for for steve because we have a mutual friend here in jamaica but um and, you know, I've known him, the kid since he was 19 years old. You kind of remind me of him. Um, but he's a big time Indican King, which is Pink Kush's mother, was his favorite strain for years and years. And what I've noticed is that when guys get around 27 to 30 years old, all of a sudden, a lot of times you'll see them gravitate towards the hazes and the more, more sativa lines. It's almost like when we're young, um, a lot of us, um, like at least in the BC crowd, really gravitate towards those those indicas and 
as we get older, it's like as your palate matures, I think that a lot of people will sort of move into uh, into into those sativas. But I think that a lot of people don't have access to real sativas either. And so there's some misunderstanding of of what things are are sold as today, right? Um, like a lot of the stuff that that I see at a cup that's a sativa, I would class definitely a hybrid. Um, so I think that with this renaissance, that's the word I was looking for before of sort of heirloom and foundational strains. And um, I don't use Landry's anymore because Landry's kind of denotes that something that's left to itself to self-propagate. And so I think heirloom more correctly describes a lot of the cultivars that we're collecting from countries like Colombia, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan. I mean, there's parts and parcels where, you know, plants are feral and that, that nomenclature of Landrace, which I really coined years ago, would be more correct. But today I like to use heirloom. But um, yeah, and a lot of the work I'm doing right now is true F1 hybrids between 100% sativa plants and 100% indica plants. That's where the fire's at. Yeah, a lot of the time, yeah. Amen. Yeah. Um, can I just take, take a different uh, angle on the conversation? And if, if it's not okay, you guys can tell me, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm really curious about your history and, and sort of the past, like the Pink Kush, the Willie Nelson, just, you know, I, I don't know you that well. And, and I suppose that yeah. a lot of the listeners here may not know you. And, and I know that you have a, a big, big history. So like, I'd love to hear just some of your, some of that stuff, the, you know, the older school stuff too. Well, yeah. So when I first first went to Holland was like 2003 and we didn't we, we, we didn't know what Kush was like what America was calling Kush. And uh, so when we went there, I was exposed to OG and and a couple of other varieties like the original one. OG was a single strain <laughs> or it was like every different strain was an OG. Um, and we, we tasted it. And as soon as we tasted it, like, man, this reminds us of King. And King was always by my mentors called hash plant because it came from the hash producing countries. And so we tasted that. And, and so we called pink Kush, pink Kush because it had pink pistols and it tasted what the Dutch and Americans were calling a Kush. And we wanted people from outside of our circle to understand a description of what King was, right? And, it, and King came from Pakistan. It's a Pakistani. There's a whole history to BC flower that's kind of independent of the rest of the world. And it's called King because there was a motorcycle club called the King's Crew. And they were some of the first commercial growers, like successful commercial growers. And they had this guy named Julian Lee, Julio, who was actually an American who like was a trust fund kid who came to Canada to Vancouver Island because of the whole draft stuff, right? His parents wanted him up there to protect him. And, uh, but he was kind of a, yeah, you know, a stoner kind of hippie kid, not really a biker. But he got to know some of these bikers, which King's Crew um, became Hell's Angels in like 1991. But that's the, that's a history of that particular. And that plant back then was called King because it was their thing, right? The King's Crew's main strain. They grew that in two or three other hash plants. There was two. There was Pink King and Purple King. But they all that all those indicos were just called hash plants in, from my my mentors and like my mentors are now be like 90 years old some of them right like julian and stuff so they're they're old time cats but um these guys were growing under mercury vapor lamps back in the day that's that's how yeah. long ago they were growing. 
Um, but so the, the king was my, my foundational indica and it's really long flowering, right? So is the pink for an indica, but it is like a, a true hundred percent indica. I've done a ton of work on it in the last like four years because we made a King BX3 because the clone had drifted so hard, but that that's the foundation of pink Kush and pink Kush in Canada is like OG is to the U S like it's the most popular strain. And I always thought it would wane and it, it's kind of given I've given my head a shake a few times because I didn't anticipate the the pink would like have the the you know the length of time that it had sort of as being a you know a big cultivar in the Canadian market and I was told it was big in Colorado too I didn't I didn't actually know that till recently I think you know I had a cut that was called that I don't know if it was the actual deal maybe eight nine ten years ago uh, I'm in Bellingham Washington just over the border from BC yeah um and um it probably was yeah it, it might have been the right thing. Um, yeah. That's good. That's really interesting. So what did you cross into the into that? The, so the, the king? king originally, the first outcross was um, was with black seed, but that that was sort of not, not marketed. Um, and then there was another strain that we called Charles Cush. And I didn't call it that. I was running a grow store at the time. And I got this, there's this old guy, I can't remember his name, but he was like, a lot of the guys from BC that listen to this know who I'm talking about. He's this old construction guy, again, like at that time he was 70 something. And he gave me a clone. And I think it was like a master Kush, like an early MK or, but nobody really knew what it was, right? It was a clone that came to me at the store and I was selling clones and we didn't, weren't given a name. We just said, it, he just said it's Kush light because Kush, purple Kush and all that was just starting, right? At that time. And, right. uh, and, and so I sold it out of the grocery store and it just got called Charles's Kush. Um, and so we, we made a sea Kush. Um, that sounds like unless of a megalomaniac. So we call it in our circles, we call it sea Kush. Um, uh, uh, cross the, cross the king. And most of my strains, if when I'm talking about a stable, uh, phenotype are BX ones. So I made an F one and back cross that once to the clone. And that was the original King. And then that was pre Amsterdam. There was a period of time when I came back to Canada and I didn't have hands on, on the, um, on the sea Kush. And I got some other stuff from like Adam and guys I got to know when I was living in Holland. And so I made another cross. King's a really hard plant to breed with, like either it lines up or it doesn't. And the, the abortions are hardcore abortions. It's like one of those plants that if the terpenes align, then you can get an, an offspring that's really great. But when they don't align, it's not as good as either right. parent. Yeah. Um, so, so it can be a frustrating one. So out of like 18 different breeds, three have stuck with that plant. But when it, you hit it, you really hit it. Look at pink. Um, but the, so the post Amsterdam version was MK Ultra, Cross King, Cross King. And so there's the pre and post. You know, there's two different cuts around the island. And um there was one we called Ultra King that we want to cut for like in Toronto, Canada. And that was just the F1 between MK Ultra and, and King. That's, uh, that's Ultra King, right? Was one of our cups was with that. Um, then the Love Potion um, was uh, Santa Marta Colombian Gold cross G13. Um, I made various different incarnations of it, but the, um, it was just a sativa leaning f1 that we actually won the cup with and that was a 2004 first place seed cup in amsterdam and then 2005 was the first year that i worked with barney's farm barney's farm wasn't yet into seeds they sold like two seeds that mao from nirvana made which was like La laughing buddha and sweet tooth 
Um, they weren't really a seed bank yet. And so I, I partnered up with Barney's and we actually won the 2006 High Life with Pink Kush. And we won the 2005 Best Overall Strain with Willie Nelson. Um, and like the main event. And the Willie Nelson is the Vietnamese black. Um, and uh, we use the um, Highland Nepalese, the same one that I shared with Ace in 2003 that they bred Bangi Haze with and stuff, that Nepalese. Tons of people have had their hands. And you know what? I can't take credit for that. That strain was given to me by Stephen Tuck from Humboldt, California, way back in the day. Uh, Steve and I were working together around the time that he, um, um, well, collaborating, um, around the time that he bred the Harawana. That's why I have the Petrolia head stash as well. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of our genetics came from like a small circle of like different people between California and Canada sharing things back and forth, right? Um, and so there was those, but so many others like um, the, um, the Willie's wild, man. I got, I had, I have, I had a copy of the Willie. I don't have it anymore. Um, yeah. I just lost it within the last six months, <clears throat> but I, 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 it's wild. It's a wild flavor. Um, for oh, sure. I have a, I have a new line and we call it uh Willie 2.0 and it's more of a Willie Hayes. So I took an elite cut of Willie, one of the best that we've ever had. And I outcrossed it with my four way Hayes, um, which is, nice. uh, and it's an elite O-Haze that we went through a huge hunt for in Jamaica uh, with old-timer haze. Um, and it's crossed to a um, hybrid between a C5 IBL and an A5 IBL, thus four-way. Um, what I learned about hazes, and I've been doing a lot of work with them for the last seven or eight years, um, is that you just don't inbreed hazes. So we, we you'll hear us speak of two-way haze, four-way haze, two-way uh, or, um, we have two-way number one and two-way number two. Um, number ones are, are long flowering. Number twos are short flowering. So that means that I'm working more along amnesia super silvers and not nebels or C5A5s. So that's our number one and number two. But I've really done some really work that I, I really love with our hazes. But the new Willie, I took a super elite haze line. At, I bred it specifically the four-way number one was bred for males. It wasn't even bred. I didn't care about the females. I was trying to find a line that would impart, you know, hazy characteristics. And we made a ton of different uh, work on a hash plant clone because it was the fastest flowering we could get to sort of test the, you know, the inheritance, um, you know, and what was passed on by those haze males. So this new one is Willie Cross Four-Way. Um, and it's the seeds that I just produced are an F4. Um, nice. And it's, it's just, it, it takes everything that, that's great about Willie and puts a little bit more complex churchiness to it. You know, that sort of churchy, incense -y kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah, which really already kind of jives with that carroty kind of thing that's going on with, with, uh, with Willie. Uh, you know, it, it depends on the cut you have, but, you know, it uh, Willie already has those sort of haze-like characteristics, but but this it's, really it, it, it was almost greasy dude like like actual the smell of grease <laughs> the cut that i had and and i think it came to me by another name and then i was corrected oh um, is it they sell it to as monkey paw yes yes yeah so that's one of my that's one of my ex-employees um, okay who got some lines and i'm not even going to give much play it was just on another podcast recently um it was it was given to me from to, I, from kev 
as monkey yeah, i know i know i know kevin and me went through yep. that and he, yep. I, I know where he got it and everything yeah yep. so with my red congolese there's another strain that that's friggin loved um and it was in the exact same breed as the um as the um skunk from scratch right um it's only because it's an acapulco gold cross afghani um cross congolese landers um so that's the red congo we put that out in 03 and Kev got that. And although they're calling that same group of ex employees is calling a cut they have called the Robert Creek, Robert's Creek. Oh, Kong. crazy. So I have that cut as well. Or yeah, I did. But, I had Robert, for yeah. yeah. But even when we ran it through silos, <laughs> its only relationship is Red Congo. Red like Congo. It. Yeah, it's Red Congo. <laughs> Uh, a, a friend of mine, we I put up a, a conference in Vancouver and Kev was up there to speak, speak at it. And, um, <clears throat> what's his name who who what i'm totally blank on his name anyways uh he brought a cut of it over and one of these ladies grabbed it and threw it in the truck with her husband and threw and brought it over and then spread it out to a bunch of us to kevin me and brought it down to humboldt and um so it was nice it's a nice cut for sure dude right on yeah it's been around for a long time man so that that clone was both both those are nice because they're i think they're shorter sorry to cut you off they're they're 12 weekers you know but they they pack sativa and they're, they're, the flavor is very complex. It's not just like, you know, forgive me for saying boring haze, you know. Yeah. No, I got Yeah. Yeah, we've done a lot of work. I've been doing some work with uh, with a Rasta group here on on an old lamb's bread cutting that, that's been around. Because the, the plants are nearly extinct here. That the true, the true old school Jamaican weed. Um, man, I'll tell you, it makes, it makes like a five haze seem ultra fast. <laughs> this old lambs cutting that I got here is like the slowest plant, man. I mean, I have Lao plants that were way faster. <laughs> like it just sat there and sat there and it threw out some pistols and it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's nice smoke when you when you get it off but it's literally like two crops a year here in jamaica with, so i understand why they uh you know it, it just sort of went by the wayside just because of uh prohibition right right it's not a small plant either so um but you know it's kind of sad having traveled around the world like southeast asia is one of the last bastions where um there's still some some true beautiful heirlooms right I was there in 2019, um, going through Cambodia and although in Thailand, I saw a lot more hybrids than, than I'd seen. Like I hadn't been there since like the early nineties. So a lot has obviously changed. Right. But, but, uh, really when I got into, uh, into, um, um, Laos, Cambodia too, but around Laos is really where I found some of the real old school gems that, uh, that I, I had picked up like in Phnom Penh in a guest house back in you know, like 91. And that's, that's what uh, Kevin actually, one of his favorite strains here was my orange Pico Cambodian. And that's literally how far back my Cambo three and all that Cambodian was the orange Pico. There's a sour Cambodian um, Cambodian three, all those go back to like 1991 in Phnom Penh. Um, but uh, yeah, I was able to actually find a very, very similar cultivar in uh, Luang Prabang, Lao in 2019. So it was nice to introduce that back into some of these 
you know, genetically related, but lines that have been inbred for over 30 years. Right? Um, yeah, this is the first time in years that I've been able to grow everything that I want, how I want. <laughs> so there's been the rebirth of a lot of real old school stuff here in Jamaica right now. How, how much longer? It seemed like when you were talking about it, it, like it might be a term thing. Like how much longer do you have on the project or, or do you know? Um, well, I've been here a year now on this one project. Um, I'm wrapping up harvest right now. I have more um, seeds that we're producing, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tired right now. Um, so I'm going to head back to Canada for a period of time um, in probably late July. Um, but, you know, my kids are here, right? Our farm is here. So I have a little dispensary opening here as well. Um, so I'll be back, but yeah, so this project, um, won't necessarily wrap up because I have people here that'll keep on running it, but certainly the kind of work I've been doing, um, is kind of coming to, to an end right now. So what are some of the traits that you look for in, in males? Uh, I always like asking experienced breeders this question because every single person has given me a different answer. And uh, I'm sure you have some really good uh, observations. A lot of the best males I've ever had, I'm sure are going to be mega moms. I mean, I could give you a more complex answer than that. And there is other criteria I'll get into. But a lot of the times I'm like, look at the structure on that. Look at it. And I'm, I'm actually thrilled and heartbroken at the same time that it's a male, depending on what I'm working on. Um, but uh but no, uh, tons of different characteristics. And I know the line, it's it's helpful. But um, like on on new lines, I'm I'm typically looking for plants with vigorous growth but good structure. Um, stem rub um, and some strains here, like Memories of Afghanistan, our males and our G13 inbred line actually had trichomatic development um, at their internodes. Um, so stem rub will tell you a fair bit, um, especially if it's radically louder than than its siblings, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, just like when you're looking for a great female, you're looking for a lot of great traits, except, you know, when when we're looking at a male, we have tons of, of uh, you know, unknowns. I actually just had my first hermaphroditic male that I've had in a lot of years recently. And so I was able to use it as a teaching tool Back in the day when I first started to breed, I worked and worked on the Cambodian lines that are still existing now. And I didn't understand where is this coming from. And I actually saw a seed on one of my male plants and it came crushing down. There wasn't the internet back then, guys. We're talking about the late 80s <laughs> or what have been? No, 92. That would have been 92. But there just wasn't information. There's nobody I could really ask, right? And I remember it, the lights just came on because I was literally ready to just turf the entire line because I, I just couldn't, you know, figure out where this hermaphrodism was, was, was kept on was coming from. And I just right now in those Laos plants that I was just talking about were found, you know, hermaphroditic males. Um, but yeah, um, I'm looking for all the same criteria as a, as a, a, a female plant um that turns out to be a great male um 
a lot of times I'm not looking for those markers of height and all that other stuff that we were taught back in the day, you know, um, I'm, I'm more just looking at the plant as, uh, in some cases, as an individual, it also depends on what I'm doing. If I'm trying to maintain diversity, a lot of times I'll use a minimum of three males in an inbred line um, because I don't want to lose anything. And I also do, will do um, like a, with a BX3 that I did with the, with the king. After the king BX3, I do an open pollination where I leave like 15, 20 females, regardless of their phenotypical expressions and, and a good number, say six or eight males. And I allow them all to, to uh, naturally um, you know, um, inbreed and I'll grow out that progeny. Cause a lot of times if I'm looking at a strain that might have like, um, you know, multiple contributing parents, or I don't really know the, whether the true history of the line, you know, is, is, um, homogenous. Uh, a lot of times on those, on those small open pollinations, it'll unlock and, and show me exactly, you know, what, what potential, um, parents contributed to to that particular hybrid or not you know like with the king i did the open pollination after the bx3 and i got two phenotypical expressions um so that's sort of which is often what we see with a stable like uh, heirloom uh, landry say an afghan you know will have within a population will usually have a tall and a feet a short or a bush and and a pole right and that's the same thing i got of the king so when we're today, I think that there's a lot of mismanagement because of misunderstanding or, um, or say motivations in breeding cannabis that produce good flowers but aren't necessarily in the best interest of the longevity of the cannabis gene pool. Um, and so I try to like um, not lose anything on a line. And when I have as many lines as I do, it can be frustrating. And that's why I'm pulling my hair out after this year. Because I, I literally try to do things to the best I can, because if I don't do them, I'm not sure who has these genes and who's going to, right? And that's also why I'm at the point where I just want to let it out there and let these aspiring young guys like have some, some material that people have spent some time working, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, male selection is a pretty, a pretty um, important, uh, you know, aspect of breeding, one of the most important, but um, there's no like uh, real number one characteristic that, that, you know, stands out other than just being a great fucking plant. Well, those, those male seeds that you guys had uh, from the, the hermed male females, were they uh, male? Like were those seeds male the way that feminine yeah the female pollen with the usually with the uh, when they herm uh, go on with the females does that work the same way with males where you end up with male seeds? You know what, I I've read something about that, but I I'm not educated enough on that to really speculate whether I heard that a lot of those seeds would be um and there was seeds on this plant this time too um, because it got put in a in a male field. You know, so it got mature before I found it. Um, but I heard a lot of those seeds potentially are sterile. Um, but I, I've never really grown them because I just want to get rid of it as fast as I possibly can. Um, yeah, I also do a lot of femme femme breeding. Um, so um, because it saves a lot of time. Again, when I was working towards the e for the EU GMP facilities, 
where I had very specific criteria on active content, terpene content, for it to even sell it into the German medical market, it had to be 22%, right? So the use of, of, um, of FEM cross FEM or elite cross elite was something that I used quite heavily in my breeding program, particularly in Indicas and Indica hybrids over the last eight or nine years. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of misinformation out about you know feminized breeding, and there's been a lot of people that have just done a, a real bad job of it without like you know stress testing progeny and making sure that they actually are a good candidate for for you know being feminized or you know being selfed more correctly. Um, but uh, I've I've actually had a lot of really good success on elite lines and and making fem fem crosses and i've got some photographs of you know like you know 12 15000 fem seeds in fields in jamaica here without any intersexual characteristics whatsoever in fact we had a higher ratio of intersexual characteristics among our regular seeds than our well tested and and produced fems um so you know and somebody recently online was asking me well if if I take one of those fem seeds and use a male on it, will it be solid? And as long as the plant was properly bred, absolutely, it won't be any different than a regular plant. Um, but there's a lot of people using stuff like colloidal silver. And so when we're using like STS or, or any kind of silver, it's an ethylene inhibitor within the plant, right? A female plant puts out ethylene gas and a male doesn't. So when you inhibit the the female's plant to uptake the ethylene gas that it produces as it goes into photoperiod reduction or flowering, um, you know it, it it puts out male sexual characteristics. You know quite simply, colloidal silver is a partial inhibitor. It's not a complete inhibitor of ethylene, and so you it it often um, will sort of put out characteristics more similar to hermaphrodites. And so I've seen a higher ratio of intersexual problems amongst plants that were bred using colloidal silver than STS. Um, um, but I think the biggest issue with the reason why we're seeing stability issues in a lot of the FEMS coming out of the USA is potentially colloidal silver and just thinking that any plant is a candidate for, you know, for, for selfing and it's just not the case. Even when I'm selfing a plant because the market demands it, um, unless it's a clone only, I will select two siblings within the line that are both elite, but have different like um, characteristics within the line, even if it's very subtle. And I'll use a sibling sibling um, to produce the fem line rather than a true selfing, which is the highest form of inbreed, right? Um, but yeah, that's something that I've worked with a fair bit. And I have a lot of experience, like having grown up, you know, like tens of thousands of, of our fem seeds. So I have a really good idea, you know, about, um, you know, inheritance when, when using a female, to, you know, as a pollen donor. And um, there's certain, I think, I, don't, I, I think there's certain um, slots of inheritance that um, aren't altered the same way using a fem pollen on a female um, as using a regular. So, um, yeah, I think you really have to, uh, um, you know, use that tool um, in in an appropriate way, and maybe um, look at you know um, experimentation with you know seeing if I produce a a uh, regular seed 
um, from a line versus a self seed from the same line. Let's see what the offspring are like. And, and that's what I've done. I've, I've grown them side this by side. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I really think that, um, you know, the world's really gone towards feminized seeds. So I think we really should educate people on exactly, you know, what they're doing and how they should do it and what not to do. What this is sort of a, a follow up, but, and it's a big question. I know there's a lot of ifs and buts. Um, what are, what are the populations you'd like to look at? Like what's, how many seeds, you know, do you like to look at the, on ver various different angles, like the feminization, okay. the BX, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Like how many, how many am I going through when I'm doing the selection? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you okay, know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, so, so that's, well, that's a, that's a good question. So, um, depending on the line, um, like the the king, the mother pink kush, we grew about 500 seeds. They're regular seeds. So say we ended up with like 220, you know, real solid females. And then we'll narrow that down from there. Um, so yeah, typically, you know, um, in a country like here, um, I grow small plants at high density on raised mounds with T-tape drip irrigation. Um, so I, I'll do a whole bunch of them, um, as many as I can, literally at, at 12 to 16 inch spacing on the raised mounds. And I'll only veg them until the seedlings are, are self-sustaining or others standing up and I'm not worried about wind. So anywhere from you know 16 to, to 20 days of veg, then straight into the fields. Um, and, uh, and I go through big numbers. I put as many as 4,000 plants on an acre before. Yeah, that makes sense. And then we go through there and we'll select our, our production. How we do standouts is I had an employee here. Um, well, Garnet has worked with me since my first employee in Jamaica for six or seven years. But well, you do a flagging model. So when my staff, I have one guy who just scouts insects all day long at, at the big farms. And anytime he finds something that's problematic, he'll put a piece of orange flagging tape on that plant for me. And when Garnet or my other staff, like my, my right-hand staff, my foreman, we call them, are going through and they find an elite standout, they'll put a blue piece of flagging tape on that plant. Um, and so when I come in in the morning and I start, when I had the seven acres here, I start rolling around. I just go around and I read the tags. Um, right. And it brings me to the plants. And so usually the boys, the, the pest scouter will will call over to my foreman and he'll say, hey, look at this one, it's sick, right? And so we're constantly kind of going through and evaluating um, those, those plants, um, you know, and that that's, uh, and as we do it, we do that similar thing with sexing too. We put colored ribbons when sexes are confirmed because I don't always um, have the ability here to sex. So I'll plant at super high densities, as I just mentioned, um, and uh, and we'll actually sex. And, and in Jamaica here, I actually, is, is inefficient as this might sound to you guys, I actually um, culled certain males, had them flag out my killer males, and we actually took the males out of the mounds and moved them to the male fields. And then yeah, dude, that's what I do here. I'm a dork like that. I do the yeah. same thing. And then we, we hand collect our pollen and we, it's all hand delivered for the most part, yep. just like I'm doing feminization. It's the only way that I could manage the number of plants um, and the other thing that was a real pain in the ass for us here is this has been one of the windiest seasons that my Jamaican staff have ever encountered and they grew up here. And fuck, man, in order to get a oh, plant, 
Yeah, no, to get a pollination window, I had to get up with the sun every fucking morning. Um, or the, before the, the wind would get up. Yeah. Yeah, the wind, the wind would be calm dead from sun up until 10 a.m. Um, and yeah, so we we had we had pollination areas um where where specific lines were worked in, in those regions of the farm. Um, but man, yeah, this is this 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 particular breed was a was a big, big juggling act. And like I said, it was the the breed that never ends, man. Um, because I wanted to get through everything and I didn't want to lose anything, right? Because some of the seeds are getting really old, man. We got seeds from 2003 and 2005 to pop and we have those genetics going again. Um, so I, I just didn't really know what to expect, right? Um, but I lost about probably like 14% of my collection to non-viable germination, which was a little sad. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. But uh, yeah, things here, um, you know, I've worked all over the place and Jamaica sure is an awesome place. The friends that I've made here are lifetime friends, man. Um, it's... Uh, it's it's not exactly a gentle environment, right? I live in Spanish town. Um, like I, I actually really like like Thailand and Cambodia. I was planning to retire there um, supposedly 10 months ago um, because I kind of like that, uh, that, I don't know, more gentle, quiet kind of um, consciousness around me, right? Um, but Jamaica is a pretty sweet place. Um, you know, I've, I've spent all together over four years here, going on five years here. Um, and uh, yeah, it, and definitely some of the nicest flowers I've ever grown in my life have been here. Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, I was, was gonna, I was, I was go curious ahead. when I, I'm sorry. Please, please go ahead. Oh, so when I spent some time down there back in 2016, um, I spent some time down in uh, uh, near White House and then, uh, up in the hills uh, above it and uh, uh, in Westmoreland. And they were doing different types of like uh, fruit skin ferments for finishers and, and some of the stuff like that. Are you guys utilizing any kind of uh, more traditional inputs or are you guys all more more uh, uh, commercial with the inputs there at that particular uh, farm? Uh, no, I've been. So I do a lot of tea brewing. I have a big, uh, you know, the big totes, you know, the shipping totes for liquids. Yep. Uh, you know, they're caged totes, you know, all over the world you see them. So those are my brewers. Um, I actually have a fish pond, I was going to tell you, Steve, that has red perch in it. And it has, I don't know, probably 20,000 gallons or something. Um, I work with a medical doctor who owns who owns our farm. And so I use the, the fish water as my tea base. Um, I can't say that I'm an aquaponic guy, but I know that there's some good stuff in that as a, as a base water. In fact, I put a pipe specifically into my irrigation system so I could close off my main water line and run a submersible into the, into the high fives, dude, you're the man. Yeah. Um, and I use everything, man, everything that's available to me. Like I'm on a farm. So I have, um, I have gold. I've got fowl like I, i'll use chicken manure um it just depends on you know as long as it's well aged and everything but um yeah um i i you know i use bat guanos um locally obtained bat guanos 
basically whatever I can. But if I see a deficiency in my plants, which here in Jamaica, I've had a real issue with calcium magnesium deficiencies. Um, just the soil water, everything's different than, than what I've typically worked with. And uh, so I do fortify my crops with, with calcium and magnesium. I, I just have to. Um, I haven't found uh, an, any, anything that I can access here that pushes my, my CalMag value enough to not put the susceptibilities of leaf spot and stuff in my crops here. So um, about probably, I don't know, once every two or three weeks, we, we use a CalMag solution. That's definitely, uh, definitely interesting, um, uh, and that's certainly great to hear that you're using teas and things like that. There, uh, I was very curious to, to ask you about that. We did have a question from chat for you, and they ask, uh, "Can you ask Dave if he can share his most successful methods of spreading old seed?" Oh man, yeah, this has been the year to ask me that question, guys. <laughs> so, um, scarifying and hydrogen peroxide. Um, and then I also do a soak in endomycorrhiza. Um, and that's basically it. Um, of course, not at the same time because the hydrogen peroxide would kill the, the endo, but I'm talking once the plants uh, transfer, you know, early into the medium, I have a, an endomycorrhiza that, uh, that, that I'm using to inoculate. And that out of all the, you know, sort of more modern innovations, um, the, the mycorrhiza has been something that, that I really don't grow without. Sorry, you guys, I'm just going to get my daughter to bring my dog in. No worries. Hey guys, can somebody bring Scary in? Sorry about that. No worries. I have just gonna, a, just going to get louder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that dog is like my best friend, though. Seriously, I know people say that. It's a cliche. But seriously, that dog like is like my emotional support bulldog <laughs> my my daughters say that he's special needs but not to me man <laughs> you know uh, how's it uh, sorry go oh, ahead sorry, go ahead i was gonna say how's butterfly season treating you i remember maybe butterfly season there uh it's not we're not we're not terrible at it right now but those um south american tomato moth fucking worms are the worst um we have these uh i can't remember the genetic name but you know what i'm talking about it's the south american tomato uh, something the helicopters or uh they're just terrible then they lay these caterpillars on our plants that uh that literally like bore mold through your buds so you we really have to be on top of it um you know in terms the first time I ever encountered them, I literally got my staff in at night with flashlights when they come out, and we we started by physically removing them. Um, but so, yeah, go ahead. So the easy mode, the easy mode with them, and actually, I was just I just went over this with some people this week. Um, the easy mode for caterpillars is you get the the portable black lights because like eighty five ninety percent of caterpillars are UV reflective and stand out like a neon thumb on a cannabis plant at night. So you wow. use the black lights, have the battery powered ones, and you go through yep. and it's like, pick all the neon stuff off the planet. It's pretty easy. No, that's awesome, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, the other thing that I've been struggling with here is root maggots or like a termite that eats up my root system and goes up the stalk of the friggin' plants. I And I heard uh, one of my friends, Fett, in, uh, in 
Thailand talking about a very similar issue he's having, and he referred to them as termites. But uh, the one farm that I work at here is just, it's fucking terrible, man. Um, so, so we had, so um, how we, how we address them, I had to deal with them in Puerto Rico. So uh, I think it's a similar species. And they used a combination of um, uh, boric acid, like sprinkling that water in the soil, kind of like trying to get them that way, at least near the entrances. Uh, and then uh, metaridium uh, works really well with them. But what I noticed, and something just observationally here in Thailand, so we made IPMO, which is, a, if you're familiar with IMO, it's just adding insect frats uh, as a third of the, the rice mats uh, for IMO collection. Um, yeah. And... Um, what I noticed is the ants would suddenly find the, the big thing of uh, uh, insect frass and rice and sugar when we had it uh, IPMO2. And then the ants would, after that first day or two of the ants, there was no more ants on it. So I think it's working on the ants as well. So you might even want to try collecting a bunch of the ants and seeing if you can't do like a fungal collection with rice in the forest. And then seeing if you can't find a local fungi that you can use against them. That might, and then because you could water that stuff that into the root system really well with plants it's not going to hurt anything uh, at least it's something to try oh absolutely it's it, honestly if i had to tell you the worst the worst insects we have in jamaica that is them depending on where you are the root maggots especially around here in the south are just terrible uh, at slightly higher altitude they don't seem to be uh quite as bad as they are at sea level but our soil is this incredibly thick black humus of the highest quality because it was virgin jungle right it had uh it had guango trees which are a nitrogen fixing tree they called the uh, um oh in south america they call them the rain tree um so the soil from these pea pods for you know years and years is just this beautiful black humus but i believe that's why the issue is so heavily on that one particular field is because you know the field hasn't been cultivated and it's just an ideal kind of environment. Um, I definitely am going to get, uh, when we're offline, I'm gonna ask you for, for more information on exactly what you were saying so I can implement sure. it right away because it's my yeah, biggest, so we, biggest issue. I have a whole how-to video, it's about 18 minutes long on my YouTube channel that kind of is step-by-step -step and it's all video. so. Even if they don't, you know, it's in English, but uh, even if they only speak Patois or whatever, they can just follow the directions and just copy the same thing. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Amazing. Um, other thing, I just quickly thinking, uh, what about like uh, a Muni or something like that? Because uh, I know that I let, they use that a lot of pesticides there, and it's pretty readily available. Maybe something like that, like a root trench with some Muni uh, extract in water or something like that, just to spitball it. Yeah, we've tried, we've tried a lot of the local stuff. Um, you know, a, a whole lot. And I mean, we, we were able to control it, but the point is that we have to be on top of the controls. Um, it, it, it's, it's like a constant, constant issue. And if, we, uh, if we're not on top of it, it can really, really get out of control. Uh, when I had it before on the seven acre place, um, it was more sort of isolated and they seemed to move together. And they, so they were localized and sort of moved like a like a big ravaging pack of maggots. <laughs> um, and in this particular place, in that particular field, which is virgin jungle, um, they're all over the place. It's like, yeah, we just basically have to be completely, completely on top of it. Um, 
What part of the island are, are you on? The west side, the east side, north side? I'm on the south side. Okay, cool. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Never mind. You said you're near Spanish Town. Never mind. You did say that already. Yeah, the farm, the, the new farm is right right overlooking Hellshire, which is where all the cactus fields and everything are. So it's the driest spot and it's mm. it's higher um higher altitude a bit. So I don't think we'll have that those issues there because there's a massive crop, all kinds of crops on the adjacent land to the new farm. And it doesn't seem to be uh, an issue at all. Um, but yeah, I, not that I want to give up on my current location, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of the biggest challenges that I've had since I was a new grower. That's for sure. Yeah, I think it's really important to also I share everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly with people um, on online and uh, all the different remedies and stuff. I share it. I teach people my STS recipe. It's funny because back in the early days, we were all like kind of uptight and ported information and and genetics and. Um, at this point, I think that, uh, you know, we, we've been fighting prohibition for so, so long. It's sad to see the lack of cooperation within the cannabis, you know, space. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, looking back over the years, even at myself, I have to give my head a shake at, at some of the, the historical aspects of, of our scene as it's evolved over the years. And, and how seriously some people take some stuff that we're all the bunch of farmers that that fancy a particular plant. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes that the entire industry uh, can take itself a little bit too seriously. But that's just kind of where, where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm well, sure you're seeing what it. A Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to say, crazy. particularly <laughs> the organic scene, we can take ourselves extremely seriously. Yeah, well, organics is great, and I by far prefer to use organics. But when I get into a, a a situation where, especially in a country like Jamaica, where I don't have any choices, like I was telling you guys about CalMag, right? Trust me, I tried everything I could before throwing, you know, making a CalMag solution on my crop but when i see weaknesses in my crop developing because i just can't seem to to give those plants exactly what they need from within my available organic amendments or my knowledge right like i'm not some arrogant guy who says he knows everything about organics but i have a pretty good sound knowledge of of growing cannabis and soil um but i certainly won't won't uh, you know sacrifice um to the detriment of the best interest of my crop to, to, to maintain a pure kind of perspective or, 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 you know, position, um, you know, um, obviously I want to put the very best inputs into a crop that I can and, uh, and, you know, and not be lazy and cut corners and, you know, we'll do the best I can, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, risk, um, you know, uh, success because I don't want to, give the plants uh, an element that that's derived from a non-organic source when that's all I can access. Um, so I've actually had some friends here struggling with other issues and a lot of it comes down to CalMag and, and some other issues that, uh, that, you know, I, I couldn't really tell them to how to correct without the addition of these particular inputs 
Um, and, uh, but I'm always willing to learn. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we, we all take ourselves a bit too serious as an industry um, in that, you know, go onto some of these websites and, and see some of the, the dialogue between people and stuff. And I don't know, man, I, I don't know about you guys, but I went to prison for growing cannabis and I made a lot of sacrifices, you know, to, to get the collection I have and to work all over the world like I have. And it's been a choice, right? I could have done other things. I raised four kids to adulthood and this is all that I've done. Um, and uh, so at this point in time, now that we've kind of, you know, won ourselves into a position where, you know, where, where the plant's free, I think it's time for us all to maybe cooperate and, uh, and try to, you know, get along as an industry and, and work together. Amen. I agree. Yeah. Hey, uh, so what tips do you have for growing in the tropics? I know you, you talked about a couple of other things, but what are there? Uh, really, man, uh, the soil, soil, soil preparation. This is what I did with, with Raga this year. I went into their fields and I saw how they were growing. And I'm like, guys, you need to like mound your soil so that you got, you know, 18 to 20 inches of raised mound, right? And put all your amendments and everything into that. I, and also my irrigation system is simple. It's reliable. It's my T-tape. I use it no matter whether I'm in the tropics or not. Um, but really, it, it all comes down to your soil and, and the proper development and um, orientation of your, of your crop and your soils. So building you know, the, the, the best soil you can from the inputs that you have available to you, but organizing your, your plants and understanding that when we get into rain, how's water going to flow off the field? So really, um, it's working around your environment and giving your plants sort of the support they need to, to uh, you know, to be proactive rather than reactive, right? So a lot of it comes down to well-designed drainage, soil quality, and, and irrigation that works well. Um, those are our key elements. Um, defoli defoliating, it depends on your humidity level, how heavily you need to defoliate. I've seen some places in Jamaica that I'm running 85, 90%. I had mold on the edging plants in, uh, at, at, some, at some places in Jamaica, just because in that rainy season, the relative humidity is so incredibly high. So defoliation in those cases, airflow, right? Um, I mean, if you're not fully outdoors and you're, you're even in a, say, a photoperiod extension hut, you know, like I run greenhouses with photoperiod extension, but basically it's just a canopy that collects rain off of the lights, you know? Um, so it's open-sided greenhouses if you want. Um, but even in, in those, you know, airflow and, and thinking out, you know, your environment. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, like I said, soil preparation, designing your, your, your field systems, um, you know, raised mounds in the tropics are a must. Um, and uh, yeah, irrigation. I mean, irrigation is so important and functional irrigation, you know, like, because there's a lot of irrigation out there that you can put the whole thing together and it's going to be a nightmare. Um, so, yeah. So the first thing we do is we come in and we'll assess our soils 
and then we will um, bring in our tractors and we'll cut our rows. Um, and so again, we will end up like our rows will be as high as 30 inches when we start pre-amending. And so depending on what inputs we're putting, we'll wheelbarrow that soil off onto tarps and we'll do all of our mixtures and additives. And we'll sometimes um, if I have them, I like to use um, cement mixers to proportion, mix everything, and then we'll dump it back onto the tarps and age it and then pump that all back into our raised rows, right? And that way we're getting a nice even mixture. Um, so yeah, that's really, really important. I have photos that's kind of speak to what I'm talking about, um, you know, like big acres, um, like hectaria fields and stuff. But really, there's no way I could have managed um, the crop levels that I've grown here without having really well-designed fields. So many people make the mistake of dropping plants in holes. And, uh, and dropping a plant in a hole is not really a great idea when, when you're in a tropical environment. So yeah, those raised mounds, yeah. Um, also, I like to grow a high density of smaller plants. I find when we get into some of the bigger plants in the tropics, we um, have more issues with, like this year has been the windiest year in years here. Um, so a lot of my bigger hazes and stuff needed a lot more supports as where had I established mature mothers um, of those hazes and flowered the clones smaller, I probably could have controlled their size a little bit better and had more efficient crop management. So it's a matter of assessing, um, you know, the size that you want and your field density, right? Um, yeah, there's there's a lot um, to input. I think that's some of the errors that I've seen some of my friends making in Thailand too, is vegging plants, you know, to a fair size before they put them out and trying to manage these, even say like, you know, five foot plants, um, you start to have airflow problems, like I said, breaking limbs, more difficult to defoliate. And if they just mounded, say on a 18, 20 inch mound and planted one clone every 16 inches, their end yield would probably be higher and their yield per year for sure would be higher. Um, and uh, molds, um, trimming, all that stuff would be easier. So it's just a matter of getting to know your plant and understanding how to best get, you know, your yield, um, and start thinking about when you're on a on an equatorial photo period. Start thinking about see a green outside. Um, you know, that's that's really some of my recommendations. I know, Kenneth. I had a couple of questions for you as well. I just want to say what's up, fellas. Yeah, I'm enjoying the, the combo. Scott, how you doing, man? Not bad. How are you, man? Pretty good, pretty good. I just want to touch base with you, say what's up. And uh, I've been in touch with Pitt. Uh, All right. And, 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 and we're, we're ready, man. So ready. ready. Yeah, I, I actually just sent some stuff to Pet. Um. Yeah, actually, I was so funny. We're talking about this. Me and Pet had the same conversation. I was sending him pictures, you know, of my best crops here. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about, you know, basically most of my plants end up as four feet, you know, in an ideal crop at the mm -hmm. most. 
they 36 inches and I was showing them some of the yields that we've got like on high densities. Um, and also I have a lot of the data that on our losses, um, like, you know, um, you know, per, per acre. Um, and so, yeah, I think that some of the, the information that I've sort of learned about growing in Jamaica um, could, could probably be, you know, well absorbed in, uh, in Thailand for sure. I'm stoked to, to get there and, and uh, yeah, grow some plants with you guys. Yeah, similar to the Caribbean, definitely. Yeah. A little bit hotter, but very similar. Well, that's really hot here right now, man. Yeah. Yeah, we've, uh, we've had a heat wave. How about you guys this year? Yeah, I think Chiang Mai broke hard. a record. Chiang Mai broke a record this year, I believe, in, in heat for early on. Yeah, it hit forty. It hit forty-five. Yeah, it hit forty-five here. Yeah, that's hot for up, up in the mountains. Yeah, my my hottest farm was Guamo, Colombia. Man, oh my god, it what was, was that. Like, at? Oh, Guamo is like four hours towards Venezuela from Bogota, and wow. it's in this it's in this like plain area that kind of look. Imagine a, a a tropical Oklahoma. <laughs> um, oh wow yeah that's the best way to describe it it's like this plains area it's surrounded by mountains but it's like plains and prairie and it's just fucking ball breaking hot every fucking day man and uh when it rains it 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 really really rains but yeah we had a, a pretty we grew some fantastic weed there and actually did really really well on cbd it's actually the the only time that I really worked CBD and really hit like successful, successful numbers. Um, not that I, uh, you know, Dave Watson and I were talking about this years ago when, when they had us wanting to, to breed all these one-to-ones and stuff. And we were like, we spent like 30 years breeding that shit out of the weed so that we get high. And now they want to put it back in. <laughs> um yeah i also had a question are you do are you releasing an uh that bubba yeah man i'm i'm working on some bubba you know what it didn't make it in this round um my kush genetics um i won't even get into it but uh uh, one of my staff made a mistake and and literally germinating seeds somehow got frozen in jamaica um but anyways yeah so the bubbas i have some great bubba lines like my first bubble line ever was actually eight ball that released by Barney's Farm. That was the first bubble work I ever did, and it oh, wasn't Lord. it wasn't really meant to be released either. That was an NL five cross NL two um, cross Bubba, and that was and Derry just got the clone out of our rooms when I worked with him, and he just ran with it and called it eight ball. But uh, but yeah, now I have some fantastic Bubbas that uh, that I'll be bringing out. I was actually just asking Kevin. Um, because I have a super elite Bubba female, um, that's one, um, from one of the GMP facilities that I kind of did a an S one job on a really elite clone under the nose of my QA, and um, and I was asking Kevin Jodry actually about a uh, about a really um, stable Bubba line to to integrate into that, but I've got a whole bunch of different Bubba works. Yeah, I love Bubba. That I, I saw the pig, I saw the structure. I was like, my goodness. I haven't yeah. seen it. I mean, yeah, man, it's been 
back when was I first I think I got the first Baba in my hands around like 2002 yeah nice you guys probably had a little earlier down there in California hmm. it's one of my favorite some of my top 10 I'd say for smoking I love it yeah there's a Baba cross pink that's pretty popular in Canada that um, sounds amazing yeah we definitely have some new pink lines, uh, a pink that was bred here in Jamaica. Um, that That's just a, a standout for, for tropical production. Like my ultimate pink was really, really selected around, you know, indoor kind of, uh, you know, ideal parameters. But the particular selection that I had that was um, held here in Jamaica since last time I lived here, and it's still around, um, just thrives here, you know, and it, it's not that it's, it's, uh, any different than the other was just a particular phenotype from a huge number of plants. We grew like, you know, 12 or 15,000 pinks. Um, and this particular pheno just really, really, uh, um, you know, excelled in this environment. It's a bit more, I would describe it as viney um, than, than a typical pink, but it also allows it to be more flexible in the, you know, in some of the, the windy conditions and stuff here. Um, so it, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have brittle stalks. Um, but for sure, I, I think those are already on the way to, to FETs right now. Um, yeah, and a, bunch right of, a whole bunch of others too. The, uh, the cherry fresh, um, which is the cherry bomb indica, cross golden temple, BX1. It's a whole bunch I'm sure that you guys will find kind of interesting because they're, they're not really related to, um, to the California lines, right? Right. The cherry bomb, is that a Mr. Green Jeans cherry bomb or is it a different one? No. So there's, so you're thinking the one I did with Green Jeans cherry bomb is called Cherry Bomb 2. And we have, we okay. released that way back in the day. And the, the Cherry Bomb Indica actually came from a friend of Jack Harris, like in 2002. Um, when they were doing the hemp car, they did this hemp fueled car in Canada where they, they were doing a pointing. Anyways, that's the, they came to me from California way back in those days. And it is more of an indica. Um, and uh, it's been in my collection for, for years. And uh, it makes almost like golf ball, like round, heavily red haired, um, you know, cherry. It doesn't really have fuel. It's more like a, a sweet kind of candy cherry, you know, like an artificial cherry smell. Um, but uh, we released it in a ton of different stuff by Cherry Haze. Um, but uh, yeah, the Cherry Kush, we took the Golden Temple Kush, which is uh, uh, something that was collected near Amritsar, India uh, years ago and uh, crossed it with the Cherry Bomb Indica and did a BX1. Although now I think it's uh, uh, probably been inbred for three generations, depending on the seeds that you get from the but yeah, guys are just, you know, absolutely loving that one. And I have another one that Barney's Farm released as, what do you call it? Pineapple Express. And <laughs> it's it's a, a C99 hybrid. We have a whole bunch of, of stuff that just thrives here that I know will thrive there. When I say thrives, it just uh, stands up to everything, you know, that the environment can throw at it, even rain and stuff. I have a new one called... Um, uh, sugar blossom skunk and uh it's my skunk from scratch cross c99 cross skunk from scratch 
Um, and man, it, it was one of my favorite. I don't think Kevin Jodry really um, liked it because he was so heavily sort of inundated and, you know, um, entranced by the pure sativas that he can't usually access. Um, I was a bit disappointed because I thought he was going to give me a bigger response when I showed him that particular strain. But most people really fucking like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sending you guys some real interesting stuff. I'm, I'm sure you guys will really dig it. And, I'm ready. Uh, we're ready. I'm ready, man. I, yeah. I actually, I just got, I just, just now got room to, to spread as you crack the knuckles, so to speak. Right. So, well, I think, I think you guys, what you'll dig about him is, just how well they'll perform in extreme heat and humidity, right? Um, yeah, heat. Uh, yeah, out the breeze. It's, yeah, it's and, a memory. It's in there. I, I feel you. Yeah, and just and just main, maintain, you know, like yeah. even yeah, those plants didn't get affected by root maggots. Like there's certain ones that were just complete standouts, right? For this kind of an environment. So I sent you guys a whole bunch of those ones and a bunch of other stuff. I'm sure you guys will fucking really love because it's unique. I'm sure you won't have have anything like them in the collection. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Uh, speaking of heat and humidity, uh, what kind of dry and cure process are you using in the tropics? So it's a question we just got from uh, there. Lou in chat. Um, I D hums and air conditioning. Um, yeah. So you can't really, you know, cut corners with it and trying to dry without um, at least AC in this type of a tropical environment is really difficult. And so many people will grow really nice flowers and take it to the end and then fuck it all up. Um, so, yes. I, so I really like climate controlled um, drying and I, I don't wet trim, I hang dry um, and, uh, and hand trim. On the commercial stuff, we actually use trim bags. Or how much how much uh, families do you leave on depending? Oh, not much, man. Okay, no, I, I trim my 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 weed old school. Um, again, it just depends on on what it's for, right? I mean, and when then, you hang when you hang on the line, do you leave the fans before when you? Oh hang, no no no. Okay, you... okay, so when we're cutting down a plant. We'll we'll take off all those big fans for the most part. Okay, that's um, what I thought. Yeah, just just to get the airflow happening into the plant, right? So right. we exfoliate the shit out of it. Um, in fact, I'll even have the girls do a pre-cut like the day before we're going to take down, right? Just so it's mm -hmm. sort of and then we'll go in and we'll limit, and we'll usually limit. It just depends on our hanging process. This particular crop's been very different because the last for one year, a hundred percent of my production's been geared towards genetics. Um, so I haven't been doing a lot of anything that's you know been been not geared towards breeding um right. but uh, typically um yeah so i had all these these fancy trim machines and all this shit in my first like when i had the first farm here in jamaica i had um twisters like big double twisters and all that crap <laughs> um, and they literally just got put in a shed and locked up and we um, hang dried and and ran trim bags on all the commercial weed. I actually find that trim bag another innovation uh, for the right flowers. Um, but for commercial flower, and I mean like a lot of the big, dense, popular kind of um, uh, 
you know, common genetics that that uh, are sold in dispensaries and whatnot. Um, I, I find the trim bag works amazingly well. Yeah. Right. I mean, if it's a crop level, if it's a cup level crop or it's, you know, high trips no. or quad weed, obviously I'm not going to let anything near a, a trim bag. But, you know, what I'm, we're talking about a commercialized business and that, right. that trim bag is such an innovation, really. It, it saves people a lot of money and it saves a lot of time. Um, so kudos to the trim bag people. Right on. And I, I also have a question. Um, do you cure do you cure your 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 seeded flowers as the same as you would your uh, unseeded, so to speak, your smoke flowers? Do you cure do you treat them the same when you no, no, no. In fact, uh, sometimes depending on the particular genetics, I'll actually turn my water lines off on the field and allow the plants to fully dehydrate on the field before they're harvested for seed collection nice okay and you know what's really interesting guys i couldn't figure out why i couldn't like like you know growing true afghan plants like uh like sari pool i couldn't figure out why is it my hash never tasted the same as the import and the and the weed that and the hash that i smoked there and i i just ran some afghans um and they were sun-dried and fully mature because they were seeded and that hash tastes exactly like the Afghan <laughs> Afghanistan. So I kind of I kind of figured out why I can never quite get it the same, man. Because of course the handling of the flower, the environment is everything, right? Love um, it. But but oh I've got some Afghan here. If somebody told me that it was sent from, from Afghanistan, I'd actually believe them. And I'm a pretty hard nut to crack when it comes to, to imported hashes because they're that's what I smoked first in my youth, right? Right. So I've always been a, a big lover of Afghan and Pakistani hash. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, I, I finally figured out after years of, of, of trying to duplicate the hashes that I smoked over there that I just treat my plants too well. <laughs> that's what, right, though. That's, that's great. You figured it out like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really love making dry sift hash as well. It's one of those, uh, one of those kind of fine arts that that I've been into for a long time. And uh, for me, indica is really about hash making, and sativa is for smoking flowers. Um, that's that's kind of always been my outlook. Um, I I prefer to smoke indicas and hashes and sativas as as cannabis. Nice. Is there, much, the, is there much of a the hash culture in Thailand? There's um, starting to so be now. Hash, yeah, there's starting to be, but I mean, you have to remember there's no traditional hash culture here. Um, yeah. And yeah. concentrates well, get you quite a bit more trouble. There was a little bit. There was a little bit because I've got because I've got the inserts from the hash block still. So I mean, they, they used to make they used to import it. We used to get it. My dad used to get it. So. For, but yeah. not a lot. Like I said, the, yeah. the three the three kilo sticks were the main thing that came in. Interesting. Yeah, there were. Yeah, but I haven't seen anything really like um, super resiny large trichome size. Like most of the Thai stuff and Lao stuff and Cambodian stuff, the Vietnamese stuff that we I've seen out here. 
uh, is, yeah. is much smaller on the trichome side than the finishers, you know. It's true. The trichomes that are like waving to each other way apart. I get it. Yeah, I just actually, I actually just made uh, a Super Lemon Lau um, into a hash and it won't press, eh? Mm. Uh, it's super sandy and um, and it has high terp value and everything. It's lovely and it fucking knocks your head off, but it just, it just, it just will not press into a, uh, into a, you know, into a cohesive hash that that other varieties will. Um, I've had uh, different Thai varieties in the past, um, you know, you know, produce some hash that that I could press, but it was really interesting that the 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 super lemon lao um, just it would not probably do well with uh, the way we modern the way we you know what modern water sieve and you know and then press into rosin because that's that's the goal is to actually get it out you know you want the the more brittle heads right yeah when you're would, using water i really don't enjoy that rosin process you guys i went and spent all this money before i left canada no and but I, i'm just letting you know as someone who oh, do, who's no, like thinks no, looks absolutely. at plants in that in that way that 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 plant probably does perform really well in that in that direction mm -hmm. genetically yeah, I, but I was kind of disappointed because I because I got so into hash making for so many years. I thought that I might like, you know, enjoy the rosin thing, and and for me, it just wasn't something that that clicked at all. Um, no, it's 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 a what it's a hype thing right now, but it, it in reality, it's a secondary product, right? From from good good full melt hash properly sieved you know that's that's the ideal and then you know whatever else doesn't melt you you press into rosin you know and uh, somehow that that has trended into you know people putting almost the entire thing in there and just pressing it into rosin because that's the easiest way to deal with the shitty crop you know and they don't realize that quite honestly yeah it's interesting how how popular it became in canada in the last while um, I had made all this hash. I did a huge crop on Salt Spring Island in 2020. And uh, the market was just fucking tanked. <clears throat> and so I made a whole bunch of dry sip. And uh, guys were saying, man, you need to press that into rosin. So I went and bought all that fucking material. And I'm like, tell you what, buddy, how about you come to my house and press it into rosin? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting one. But yeah, my family and I have made a lot of hash, man. Um, and we're kind of in that mode here right now because we have all these flowers that go through the seed blower, right? We have a, like a machine that that blows the flower and the trikes and everything and just leaves the seeds in a cup. And so we've been we've been running through through uh, processing all of that that flower. And some of it is, you know, kind of shitty because of broken heads and others are, are turning out actually amazingly well. Um, but yeah, we're we're. Uh, we're sort of really enjoying our our hashes right now here in Jamaica, but here in Jamaica too, there's not much of a hash culture. I mean, they they hand rub like in the charis tradition in Westmoreland and in certain areas of the country years ago, sort of for the tourist trade. I don't know how commercial it was, but um, even the the extracts. I think Jamaica is going to remain a, a kind of a, a flower smoking country it's just uh so ingrained culturally um that i'm not sure whether or not 
extracts and, and hash would ever really catch on here. The gum, they call it gum there in, in Westmoreland, yeah. and that stuff is super tasty. Look, yeah. Funny story, I, um, <laughs> and you might even know some of the people in the story. Okay, so I just got to Jamaica, and uh, I brought a little dab rig the second time I came down there because I had you know, a bunch of gum and stuff. I wanted to smoke and try smoking it like on a clean glass thing instead of with a flower. Uh -huh. And I hadn't met my business partner's wife yet. And so I'm sitting in the kitchen like, uh, or on the porch or whatever it was doing it, like heating up dab rig. And she comes up and sees me with like a blowtorch and the glass. She freaks <laughs> the fuck out and make, kicks me out of the house and makes me like wait down at Scotchy's down the street. And finally I had to call they the uh real good friends with uh, rasa aggie and uh that i ended up having to call doc and get rasa aggie to come down and explain to his wife that like it's ganja and that there's there's it's not anything else and, and it literally took like four hours of like explaining to get her to like calm down about it it was hilarious <laughs> that's an awesome story man and i could totally see that happening here too yeah yeah, because they associate glass with, with like hard drugs in Jamaican culture. Like papers oh, is for weed, sure. and glass is for everything else. You know? They just think to they just think the white boy smoking rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's pretty funny. How how is the situation there in uh, in Thailand um, culturally in the drug scene with all this new uh, new development? Is it? Uh, has it changed a lot? I mean, I, it's going to because of the shops, but is it chill or is there violence or anything? No, chill. so in the weed trade, there isn't, yeah, there isn't like farms whacking each other or anything like that that I've heard of. If it is, it's being kept very quiet. Um, but most of the stuff that you see, like every time you see something crazy in the news, it's someone on meth, which they call Yaba here. Um, it's uh, all yeah. like there was just an incident at Pattaya. Some some guy was throwing all the furniture out of like fifth floor of his hotel room, like trying to hit people. And it was like, oh yeah, no. That the at first they were like, we don't know what drugs he was on yet, you know. But we we're worried about this legalization. And I was like, no, he's just on meth. And it's like, well yeah, <laughs> like no one's gonna fucking get high on weed and start throwing furniture out the window. Like it's just not how that drug works. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm not a drinker yeah. myself, and so. Um, I, I like, I, I, I'm not like a bar fly or anything. So I've always been, you know, my kids, everything. I didn't really have people drinking in my house or anything. So they've, my kids have literally been raised around like cannabis culture and the extreme. Uh, and they, they all work, with, they all work with me as well. Not all of them, the older two, uh, one's a journalist. He's in Africa right now, and uh, yeah, my other one's actually a um, a uh, mental health nurse in uh, in Canada. But my younger two actually run my farm and put up with the eccentric old man pretty much twenty four seven three sixty five. And Kevin Jodry was kind of blown away by them because you know he interviewed them about like you know the drug war and and me going to jail when they were little and and helicopters and all the kind of shit that they were exposed to you know growing up and yet, yet, look where they are right and they're like you know 26 and 22 and this is what they chose right so it always kind of made me wonder um 
if you know it evolved in the black market i would have never exposed my kids because i wouldn't want them to go through some of the difficulties that i did you know um but it's really it's kind of interesting because i i would have thought that perhaps my son who is actually a really uh, he's award-winning um photographer right a conflict photographer and shit i would have thought that considering he worked in in the cannabis industry the legal legal one from the his 18th birthday i kind of thought that he would uh would be here and actually my my middle daughter liberty seems to be the one who who really is taking the bull by the horns and will probably take over the entire collection and stuff when when i go um so it's it's been a kind of full circle for me in that, you know, I started this, I started selling seeds in Canada in 1995 and I raised my kids and I didn't do anything else um, after they seized my farm and stuff, except for this. Two years after I got out of jail, I won Canada's first cannabis cup. And like I was saying earlier, I kind of skirted all over the world. I, after I won the cannabis cup, it opened up doors. Right. And, um, Dave Watson said, you really want to grow a population of plants? And he's like, for sure. He's like, you understand the risks and everything. And he introduced me to people who got me that ability, right? And for me, it's been like uh, like a passion. And I could do other stuff. I did really well. My background's actually in animal genetics. And um, I work for major pig breeding companies and pork marketing council and stuff. But um, I just couldn't stop wanting even in the times and periods when i tried not to grow it just preoccupied my consciousness all the time and uh so i finally just gave into it and you know i did i've done work in egypt and i did work in syria before the arab spring you know and um and i you know i did work uh in mexico and um, I didn't grow in Colombia, but I went to consult on grows in Colombia. And this was all before, you know, legalization. I was just like, wherever I could get in to like, maybe get some work in and that period of work would like support my family for a period of time. Um, and so around two, after I won the cup and stuff and Mark Emery got arrested, um, I split out of Canada and I went and did that work Based, based my company out of Amsterdam and I went and did that work in the Middle East well North Africa actually not the Middle East um, and that funded my family's move to Mexico and my kids went to a school in Mexico and I worked and lived there and then by the time I got out of there and came back to North America I could get medical licenses on my house right and so I came back and did work in Canada and I remember the first crop that I did under a legal license and that license was only for 15 plants. And the RCMP parked two fucking police cars in front of my house when we trimmed because the smell was wafting down a block, right? Um, because despite the fact it was legal, we had these, these oppressors that just couldn't believe that, that I had a trim crew in my house and it was legal. And so they just sat there for eight-hour shifts to intimidate the people that were working for us. And so it's kind of crazy, you know, now I come out working here, about to go to Thailand, had a 1.2 million square foot grow in fucking Canada. Like it's, it's kind of right now I'm, I'm kind of looking back and saying, you know, this was a fuck of a lot of fun. And I certainly didn't choose the way of the working class hero. Right. And so, uh, yeah, Amen. 
And so growing all these plants that I just did were, was really a lifetime collection of, of genetics and just like digging through them and trying to, to you know, keep them, uh, you know, keep them alive. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that stuff. I tell you, a lot of it. Structures, this are, yeah. Yeah. To answer your question, though, we do have Thai social clubs, so that you can't leave. You're not supposed to legally let people smoke in your dispo, but you know that's not heavily enforced outside of you know the tourist areas. But uh, the social clubs are becoming really popular. They'll have like a, it's like a bistro. They'll have like a kitchen. It's almost like a, a bar and a grill, but uh, instead it's a um, you know it's a cannabis lounge. Oh, nice! And they're kind of going up all over the country. Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere, and we were just at one yesterday. So, so what do you guys yeah, think is going to happen with this election? I heard that the opposition is like ahead in the election right now. Yeah. So the thing is, is that well, we'll see. Sorry about that. Um, so he has. Uh, there's kind of three different scenarios, and two of them, cannabis isn't going to really get messed with too much. They're definitely going to add some regulations. It kind of needs a few more regulations to kind of tighten the market up a little bit. Um, but uh, but that's right now it looks pretty promising. Like the uh, everyone's kind of chilled out a little bit. Um, they're they're right now the main two parties don't have enough, and they're like seventy short or sixty nine short of people in order to get the majority they need. And the pro cannabis party has seventy one seats, so it's the easiest thing for them to negotiate to get to um, secure power. But until oh. the other 250 people vote that are like the military chosen people, uh, we won't know what happens. But after that, then then we'll see. But the party that won wants to do some pretty major reforms that might not go over super well. So we'll see. We'll, you know, you never know what happens in Thailand. It's kind of hard also, to look it back after letting it out, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah, exactly. You can't close the Pandora's box after it's open. Well, the other bit of it is, is, so Thailand almost never revokes business licenses and all the business licenses are granted for two years. So I could see them doing something when those start to expire as far as renewing them or something like that. But I don't think, like, even if they had them, they're super against it, it's going to take them, I think it's 270 days um, from the moment they form the coalition before they can actually pass a law and then it can go into effect um, So in terms of cannabis, sort of a... a decree through the Royal Gazette. So, um, you know, right now, even if that happens, nothing would change until early next year, even at the earliest. So, you know, what's crazy guys had I known the way Thailand was going to go like that yeah. fucking idea, the work that I just did would have been there. I was planning to retire in Kampot, Cambodia anyway. So I should have just followed my instincts. <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. No one saw this coming really. No, yeah, funny. I never thought I'd be in Thailand. I never thought I'd live in Oklahoma either. I think that's just as yeah, much I'll tell you another thing. I'll tell you another thing about over here, the power of, of the plant when it was on when it was taken off that schedule five, it was what it did to the Yaba scene. Uh you know that the, the Yaba pills uh average between two fifty to three hundred a pill and and after June 9th when they opened, it was amazing. Dude, the Yaba pills went down to 30 baht a pill. Nobody wants that. Really? Hmm. So epically, epically, uh, they let everybody out of jail that had a wrap with any kind of cannabis. And then it just squashed the meth market. They didn't 
because nobody, everybody jumped on the team green thing. Was that, I, it was awesome. But one of the best things that happened to this kingdom was cannabis. Yeah, and you, you have the you have the meth issue here, and it's not even ties that are doing it. The reason why it's, it's such a problem is you have this civil war next door, Myanmar, and both sides of that war are producing meth, basically, in order to sell it so that they can fund the war. So you, you have all, a lot of South being kind of flooded with production right now from Myanmar because of the, uh, the civil war there. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is transiting through Thailand, but, um, you know, it really has been, the cannabis legalization really has done a major, major blow to her, uh, to helping, you know, suppress the, the, that issue here, which is really nice. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing, guys. That's good to hear. Yeah, Vancouver is actually, it, I mean, we lost 10,000 people to the opioid crisis last year, for fuck's sake, man, 10,000 people. In one fucking province, you know, Sad. yeah, it's just it's just kind of crazy how quickly drug reforms are coming in. You know, starting with cannabis, be interesting to see. They just legalized hard drugs in Vancouver because of it. Um, so mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see exactly. You know, has the consciousness changed with cannabis, and now it's changing with psychedelics, and now the opioid crisis. I wonder if we're going if we're not going to see. Uh, uh, a shift in drug policy towards kind of, you know, open access for adults in some of the more liberal, liberal places. That seems to be where it's where it's heading, which I don't think is necessarily bad when you have ten thousand people dying because of a poison drug supply, right? Oh yeah. Well, that's one thing you don't see a lot here in Thailand. Is one part is the culture, right? So if you have a drug problem. Like you're going to end up at the temple because you're not going to have anywhere to go to get food or sleep. And then they're going to like help take care of you and try to get you off or whatever and try to like get you a job, like, get you a job at the temple for a bit. You're just sleeping so that you got a place to sleep and, and food in your belly and then like build you back up. And then afterwards they like treat you like a normal person again. It's not like the North American culture where people are very, they like vilify people for having a drug problem versus here where they like, are like, oh, you're going through some bad shit. We're going to help build you back up again. It's a different way of thinking. And that also makes it so that when people do have drug issues, it's, it's much less toxic to society here than it is in a lot of other places. Um, they also yeah, the also have the access to it helps with the opioid issue. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It, it's Yeah, it's depressing. Vancouver is just just literally, literally a sad place. And it was always like the epicenter of cannabis culture, you know, going back like 30 years. And now we're not known for cannabis culture. We're known for fucking overdose deaths, right? It's uh, literally, you know, it used to be BC bud was this common word. And now, and now it, bud's kind of gone more global. And uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting how society's changing them. I'm not really much of a conspiracy theorist because the right wing shit I was raised with, we use that so much as misinformation and stuff. But right now, looking around at what's going on with with society, I mean, we had uh, Trump sort of open up this this bold ignorance that was lurking, but but didn't have a sort of a path to to be heard. Right. And now it seems like Biden is picking away at the. uh, at the at the very issues that that were you know embraced by Trump's ignorance, um, yeah, and economics and stuff. I think we're in a really interesting and transitional time, more than maybe we give credit for. 
um, overall, you know, in our state of affairs as a society, maybe we're uh, we're heading towards the necessity of a of more of a global citizenship. I think that really what the inevitable end reality will be as the scaffolding of imperialism collapses. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially with AI, you know, you're going to have a huge amount of the current workforce that is replaced by, you know, a couple of servers. So that's going to, that's going to change things up quite a bit, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. But it's interesting how drugs has always played a role connected to the politics, even the way that cannabis was used, you know, from the 60s through the, even into the 90s to, to fund political change. And now these, these very issues come to being such a forefront of a, at a much deeper level um, in society than, uh, than anyone could have thought, you know, it's, it's really yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, we've had you on here for about two hours. So I don't want to tie up your whole evening, but we definitely would love to have you back on again some, some other time in the future as well, uh, once you're uh, uh, on to your next chapter and, and finding out uh, what you're up to in, in a couple of months. For sure, man. I'm starting to talk about politics. It's time to get that fat man off the fucking station. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, it's fine, man. But we, we love to... Uh, if, if you like Jamathon, we do. We have a separate show on on Thursday, or Thursdays my time, but Wednesday nights, uh, U.S. time, called That Smoke Show, and we're a little, a little more looser on on the topics. This show, we try to try to be a little more focused, but it's totally fine. Like that's you know what it is. What it comes down to is it's still part of cannabis um, politics, right? Like oh, it is. Yeah. Politics is certainly playing a big role here in Thailand with with the future of it, and it's it certainly uh, you know played a role for a long time in the United States and still is playing a role in the United States. So for sure. Thank you so much for having me guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, how can people find you or support you or <laughs> any other way that you want to let people uh, uh, know about anything else that you want to uh, tell them about? Um, I would, my, my website's actually down right now getting changed to a different format, but Scott family farms on Facebook, and uh, yeah, we have a PDF. What's going on right now is we just signing a distribution deal with a major UK distributor. So um, our seeds will from this breed will will start to hit the market in like the next probably 60 days. But uh, they were available on scottfamily.farm, which will be back up. But we had some issues with Spotify not recognizing that cannabis seeds are unregulated in Jamaica. And so they cut my website um because they said that i don't have a license to retail cannabis seeds in this country um but if you google it they're actually cannabis seeds are legal and customs says you can send them through the mail but anyways that's why it's down but you guys can check me out at scott family farms on facebook wonderful well, I'm thank gonna, you so i'm gonna be, be swiping up a lot of packs <laughs> right on. thanks chris yeah we have a pdf too i'm still shipping um, so yeah, thanks guys. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. I'll see you guys when I get into Thailand, probably in August. Right on, man. Yeah, Looking definitely. forward to it. Looking uh, forward to it. You stay blessed. Yeah, definitely let me know. We'll be sure to get together. All right. Sounds good, guys. Take care. Take, Take care. Soon. Thank you. And uh, how do people find you there, Canatai? Uh Facebook or uh, IG, uh Canatai Seeds underscore official. Until uh, 
if, unless I get my new one back, which is just a can of Thai seeds. And uh, you guys can also find Dutch Blooms at Dutch at Dutch underscore Blooms. He was on here earlier. Uh, you can find me at Poponics, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all the things, uh, as well as Rumble. We have the YouTube channel now is backed up on Rumble. So, um, you know, if you're, anything ever happens to the channel, you can find all the same content. Uh, it is dual copied over each time we do an episode over here. So, um, and if you do, you do have a if cannabis content, you aren't aware of that, um, connect your YouTube account to Rumble so that you can automatically back it up because, uh, you know, cannabis content is often targeted by YouTube. So make sure to check that out. And, um, yeah, we'll be back again next week. Um, yeah, we have some cool guests in the queue. We have some cool events that we're working on out here in Thailand that you guys are going to be super stoked about that we'll including, uh, the first events, uh, that a couple of different, uh, more famous people have actually done in person. So, um, Really stoked to be able to talk about that once we're able to. So take it easy, guys, for now. See you guys again next week.